Hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk about uh, one thing that you should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly, or maybe two things. That... Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we had a we had a, an equipment malfunction. We're going to call it that. Uh-huh. Where it just, like, we went, we recorded, I moved the SD card, and there's just nothing on it. Uh-huh. It was completely empty. Uh-huh. So here we are re-recording our episode. Our episode? Well, when I say our episode, I really mean this is an all Maddie spectacular. Yep. I talked for an hour and a half straight, and Austin went to do the editing, and there was nothing. Nada. If that happens again, I'm just done with this one, because yeah. it means that something is trying to protect me, because I am legitimate. This is a true crime history one, guys, and the person, some of the people, plural, involved, still alive. Yeah. And um, scary. And also, um, while we were recording, um, our I think our ghost tried to warn us that, in fact, something has gone wrong, and we didn't listen. Yeah, I had actually said God, because it comes up in the story, and there was a knocking on our wall in here, and this is a wall that has nothing on the other side of it. Like, not even, there's not an empty room. It's a wall that goes to, like, the outside. Yeah, it's like a little, like, it's the area between our the wall and the roof, and it's like a tiny little crawl space of insulation. And yeah, and this was not a scurrying animal noise. This was a distinct knock. It was like a... Yeah. So I think it was trying to warn us, because I did see our ghosty the other day. It was flying across the kitchen. I'm just like... And as always, I tried to be like, okay, what was making a shadow? Was there a car going by that could have caused this? No, there was nothing. It's just a black orb that flew by that I saw without my camera. It wasn't one of those. I've seen a black orb thing before. This one wasn't massive and it didn't make a noise like the last one did. But yeah. so yeah, our ghosty is back and it's been locking the windows in my office, uh, which are these like locks that you have to swivel. And I don't like them because they're actually kind of hard, like they're stiff. So I, I leave and I go back and they're locked. And it happened daily for a solid week until I pointed it out to Austin. Then it was like, oh, no, I've been caught. And it stopped. I think it was the cats. It seems like something they The cats do. physically can't do this. You need you opposable thumbs. And they also put, can't reach it. Don't put limits on our cats. They can do anything. The only cat that could possibly do this is Zumbi because she has figured out door handles. But she doesn't go in that window. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and she's always like either with us or hiding under the bed yep, from those, the ghosts. Those are Zumbi's two modes, with mm -hmm. us and hiding. So like Austin mentioned, this is a Maddie episode. Now, this all started with me kind of like, okay, what am I going to do? And I found this story that was literally three paragraphs on Wikipedia. And I was like, okay, I need something, you know, kind of light this week. I've been stressed out. I'm going to pick something that should go pretty quickly and have, and Austin was like, I've got a long one. So I'm like, okay, cool. If you saw my Twitter post, 12 straight hours of research on this one topic, including reading an entire book, the only comprehensive work on this out there, because um, nobody knows anything about this for realsies. And she was like frantic. Like I'd hear just like, oh my God. Or it's like, what WTF? Yeah, I would yell random things at Austin. I'm not a book reactor. I don't react to things as I'm reading them. I'm just like, my brain goes, huh. And then I move on. No, this was verbal reactions of what the actual fuck what is happening right here what is going on and i would read austin random lines out of it with him having no context for what i was talking about so confused there was like even a time where i thought she was talking about because you know she listens to a lot, of, a lot of true crime i thought she just like read something it's like oh listen to this it's like huh that's wild and it turns out it was about this yeah and here's the thing this is 
one of those that could easily be on a history podcast or on a true crime podcast. And I will tell you my hours upon hours upon hours of research into this. Like I said, I found one decent source. I have not found a comprehensive article over this. I have not found a comprehensive like thesis over this. I did not find, and I'm sure someone will tweet at us and tell us that there is one. I did not find a podcast about this, or it might have been a side note in one of them. And that's in part because um, nobody really knows what happened. And I don't mean that in a, oh, this is a mystery way. No, everybody who was involved was there to answer questions about this. Nobody knows what happened because these uh, because the main character in our story was well known for playing a variety of different characters throughout their life, including getting fake names and including the people within her own life didn't know who she was. And so let's get into it. Um, in school. And Austin's going to try to give me natural reactions. Well, this yes. story is so what the fuck that I know. It's like I think even hearing it for a second time, I'm still gonna be like, no, did I mishear that the first time? I guess I didn't. Uh, in school, we learned about the assassinations of Lincoln and Kennedy. That's pretty much it. We didn't learn that there were 17 assassin assassination attempts on other presidents. We didn't really learn that two presidents were wounded. Um, we never specifically talked about the assassination assassinations, actual completed ones, on McKinley and Garfield. I don't think Garfield existed. Nobody's ever been able to prove to me that Garfield existed. Um, well, he, I can, all I know about Garfield is that he is orange and he hates Mondays and he loves lasagna. That one was never assassinated. Wasn't he though? Have you seen the uh, comic strip that's Garfield without Garfield? Yes. It's just John having existential crises. I love it. And then there's like all these weird, like little, like where Garfield is like this weird, like Lovecraftian monstrosity who's tormenting John too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So chances are you've heard of one of the two women who has made an assassination attempt on a president. And that was Squeaky From. Oh, yeah. Squeaky From, the, the Manson girl. The Manson girl who made a an attempt on Gerald Ford 17 yeah. days later. 17 days later. 17. There was another attempt on Gerald Ford's life by and the only other female attempted assassin in U.S. history, at least on a president. Now, I'm assuming that, like, the Secret Service and everyone involved was, like, on top, their top notch. Like, oh, shit, we had this near miss with assassination attempt. We'd better be, like, on our best behavior and doing a good job because, boy, we we dropped the ball two weeks ago. You're pretty. I'm, I am pretty. <laughs> Um, so there was another one, another uh, woman. Her name was Sarah Jane Moore, kind of. Kind of. That was kind of her name. Now, I'm going to say everything I say, except for the actual criminal convictions, please put the word alleged or allegedly, depending on the grammar, in front of it, because A, a lot of this is the equivalent of hearsay, despite coming from the primary source, and B, I'm scared of her and she's still alive. So you're telling me we we have an unreliable narrator situation happening. We do. Um, she is about as reliable of a narrator as Harry Potter is. Oh God, Harry Potter had no idea what was going around the round at any point in time. Well, and Harry Potter was the hero in his own story to the max. When we all know Hermione and McGonagall, true heroes of the story. Hey, and don't forget uh, the other hero of the story. Do not Neville. say Dumbledore. Okay, Neville. Neville. I would never yes. call Dumbledore a hero. Oh, I could get into my Dumbledorean analysis sometime. Um, yeah, being a Harry Potter person is a complicated feeling. Now. Yeah, it really is. I've gotten rid of so much of my Harry Potter stuff. Yeah, we, we're we actually trying to turn our Harry Potter room into just a general fantasy room. Yeah, but we're leaving up a lot of the cooler stuff. Up. Yeah. 
But I will say, like, I'm not supporting her. I mean, I know she doesn't need my money, but it makes me feel a little better. Yeah, we haven't bought any new Harry Potter stuff, but we're not going to get rid of it. <laughs> anyway, uh, the primary source of information for Sarah Jane Moore's life is a book called Taking Aim at the President by Jerry Spile. I did not put her name at the top. Um, this woman had a decades-long correspondence with Sarah Jane Moore. Now, this is actually kind of interesting because, like I said, this is all coming from Sarah Jane Moore, who had her own view on what was going on in her life and who changed that view when it suited her. And there's a, there are times in the book where the author, I mean, it's not really a spoiler because it's history, there was a prison escape attempt and... Obviously, anybody she's been corresponding with got questioned. Like, do you know where she was going? Was she coming to you? Did you have any idea? And she goes, you know, this was really true. This really showed me that maybe Sarah was right. And they are just harassing people who know her and not, you know, wanting to find information. I'm like, she made a prison escape attempt. Of course they were coming to you for information. But for the most part, she does seem pretty objective. Um, and Sarah Jane Moore, well, for one thing, like... Moore wasn't her name at any point. There is no reason for her name to be Moore. We kind of know what her name might have been at the time, but there's a whole marriage situation as well. And the whole thing is just bananas. So everything is alleged. <laughs> yeah. Everything's alleged. alleged. And there are other crimes that happened before the big one. She has not been charged or convicted of any of them, except for one that she was kind of accused of. And she was technically convicted of, but it never went to court. She never served time or anything like that. Um, all right. So Sarah Jane Moore was born in West Virginia to Ruth and Olaf Kahn on February 15th, 1930. The best word to describe her was intense. This kid, she was immediately good at anything she tried. She did art. She did ballet. She did violin. She spoke Spanish fluently by by high school, even though she was learning exclusively at school. She was the lead in every school play. She had no friends, but she liked it that way. And the times where she was invited to things and uh, all that. She made herself the center of attention. Like one time she had a birthday party, invited the neighborhood kids. Her mom apparently made the best cakes in the neighborhood. So obviously everyone comes. She made them sit through a violin recital. <laughs> she would go to other people's parties and be like, no, how can I turn this on me? And she would make up these wild stories. Like she would insist that her family was descended from royalty. There is no evidence of this. It is not true. But she would tell these fantastical stories that would pump herself up. Which, when you're in elementary school, is kind of developmentally normal. But it was the point where people were uncomfortable. So there are some there are some red flags early on. She got to high school, started getting the lead in every single play. She started getting actually a lot of like respect from her classmates. They didn't like her. They were like, she was kind of aloof and distant and scary. But we all believed that she was going to go and be famous. This girl was going to be an actress. And there were no two ways about it. And that is not what happened. After high school, oh, I, I, I missed a major part. One day she was heading to school. She was 16 years old at this point and she didn't come home. She didn't go to school. They were calling everybody. They called the police. No one could find her for days. And then one day she just comes back through the door like nothing had happened. Like she hadn't been gone. They asked her what happened. She was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. So they took her to the doctor and they were just like, uh, amnesia and left it at that. No further questions, your honor. No, but cases of amnesia like that are like super crazy rare. Super rare. They don't necessarily involve a head injury, but they tend to involve something happening or at the very least a major trauma. 
which comes up as important later, by the way. But she was physically unharmed. There was no indication that she had been harmed in any way. So the trauma thing is questionable, especially because she was just walking to school. This wasn't, you know, miles and miles and miles. She wasn't taking a bus, anything like that. So she just vanished. And then she came back and they left it at that. This became a pattern throughout the rest of her life because she realized early on, oh, I can get away with this. And, you know, in a way, I, I get this. I was, okay, again, there are times throughout the story where you're going to really empathize with Sarah Jane Moore. There are also times where you're like, holy fuck, she's a criminal and a monster. This is one of the times where I'm like, I kind of get it because I was this level of intense. Austin can vouch for that. Oh, she, um, she was and is this scary. Except for the murder part. Allegedly. So I, um, there were times throughout high school, even now, especially during my teaching career, I just wanted to run away. I just wanted to disappear. I still go on road trips when I can, and I just vanish into a crowd for a few days. It makes me feel better. I get this impetus if that's why she did it. But she also did some really terrible shit later, so I don't want to relate to her too much, but I kind of do at this point in her life. After high school, she, instead of going off to being an actor, which everybody thought she would be, she went to nursing school. She immediately excelled at everything she did in nursing school. And they're like, yeah, she's gonna be the world's best nurse. And then she dropped out. And she left and went to the Women's Army Corps because they were starting to allow women to enlist in the military to take over administrative type duties so that the men could go kill people. And she refused to tell anybody why she left nursing school and why she made this choice. Didn't bother, didn't think it was important. And she declared while she was there that she wanted to become an officer. Like this is person, it's she's so interesting because she has these lofty, lofty ambitions and then stops herself right before she reaches them. And that's pretty consistent, which is also a very common thing in gifted people. And it's something that um, gifted kids have to be like monitored for because it's a fear of failure a lot of the time. And that's what she did here again. She got accepted to the officer school, which was not common for women. She passed every exam with flying colors, including the arms exam, which makes uh, which it comes into play later because, you know, she tries to shoot someone. But instead of actually getting to enlist, she starts having fainting spells. And I will tell you in a minute why I think they're fake. And for good measure, she married an officer, which meant that she couldn't go to officer school herself, which I'd imagine is no longer the case. I'd imagine you and your spouse can both be officers now, but... I don't know. I mean, maybe you can't... You probably can't serve, like, in the same they typically chain don't, of command, I guess? They typically don't have spouses, at least not spouses, with kids deployed simultaneously. I know that. But I'm not a military person. Yeah. Like, my family, I have military in my family, but it's never come up. So she disappeared when she was 16. She had some amnesia spell. Well, she's 20 now. And she went on a tour of the White House, you know, perfectly normal thing to do. And then they leave the tour and she kind of walks off a little bit and then just faints onto the ground. So people run over, they're checking on her, and she's claiming to not know who she is or where she is. And she has no ID on her. So they're like, oh, shit. So they take her to Walter Reed because, okay, can you imagine going on a White House tour with not, without any ID? I mean, no, I can't. We went on a White House tour and we had to, like, go through a fucking background check. I feel like the Secret Service agents who were, like, with us knew more about me than you did. I mean, that's probably true. You're very secretive. I am. You're gaslighting me all the time. Do I even know that your name is Austin? You've caught me. My real name is Justin. That was lame. Yeah. I'm I'm bad at improv. <laughs> Actually, he's really good at improv. But I can't, like, I'm, I'm bad at thinking of names on the spot. Yeah, names are hard. Names are very hard. So... They got her to Walter Reed and the nurses were checking her out and they're like, okay, we got no ID. We don't know why this girl fainted. Let's get her. Like, so they got her undressed to check out her, you know, everything. And in the bodice of her dress, they found a ton of photos exclusively of herself. 
I know. weird. I know everywhere I go, I just have piles and piles of selfies. And they're in her, they're not in a person, they are in her dress trying to keep them hidden. Maybe? Because she did do this fainting thing. So obviously they put these pictures in the paper and her family's like, yeah, that's her. We don't know what's going on. So the thing is, for a moment, for a moment, this put her on the FBI's radar because they were able to figure out that she had left her ID behind on purpose. This, I don't know what her goal would have been here because this is very public. This is very, like, this is not a running away attempt, clearly, unless the fainting was real. But the fainting, the fainting kind of stops. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, it, it didn't I didn't get away with it. I need to stop. I, They're on to me. Yeah. And like this kind of thing doesn't tend to go away on its own if you are an adult. Stuff like this can go away on its own if you are a kid. Um, It's yeah. actually incredibly common for kids to have seizures. Yeah. And I, I would say there might be like some like physical thing that could have been causing this that with the 1950s technology, because they didn't have like CAT scans or MRIs, mm-hmm. they might have missed it. But again, it's like, you're right. This just doesn't go away on its own. Well, and also she went through all these years of nursing school and all this time in the military and it just started up again. But again, that could also be she's under a lot of stress. Because she she had skipped a grade when she was in elementary school, so 16 could have easily been her senior year. So who knows? This could be a stress-induced thing. I'm not saying for sure that she was faking it. I just think she was. Allegedly. Allegedly. After this, she divorced her husband and quickly married an Air Force captain named Sidney Lewis Manning, or just Sid. And when she had her first kid with him, her mom showed up and the place was like in total disarray. Now, it sounds really mean at first. Mom was like, you're not doing this well enough. You're not changing the diapers fast enough. The house isn't clean enough. You're not doing the laundry. Classic mothers. Yeah. And so it sounds like she's a huge bitch. It's like like an everybody loves Raymond situation happening in this house. Mm -hmm. And it's true that her parents had a way of doing things. Her mom liked things just so, but she was also the neighborhood mom. Like, when another when a kid was in trouble elsewhere elsewhere in the neighborhood and he needed a place to go, they brought the at one point the police brought a kid who wasn't hers to her house because I think his brother had just died in a car accident and the mom wasn't home because of this. So they were like, All right, bring him to Ruth Khan's house. So she was basically like the June Cleaver. Yeah, she was she was the neighborhood mom. But she did have expectations. Her dad was a little scary. Like he would tell the kids things like, If you need me to help me help you with your homework, you're not smart enough to get it to begin with. But to me, that also speaks some deep-seated insecurities on his part. But that's not a nice thing to say. That can fuck up your kids. But it wasn't uncommon in the 40s and 50s. And most people didn't become attempted assassins. I mean... As far as we know. As far as we know. Allegedly. Allegedly. So then she had her second kid. And it became even more apparent that, no, this is not... She is not good at this. This is not something she wants. This is not something she is suited for. She didn't handle this well. But kids, you can't just return them. Like, that's one of the arguments I hate, like, in favor of having kids is, well, you won't know if you like it until you have one. I'm like, okay, cool. Can somebody return the kid? If they realize this is not for me, what do they do with the kid? Because (laughs) Um, you you get a receipt uh, when you check out of the hospital. You do, but you still have to pay the bill. And it's like nobody ever holds on the receipt and they will not take that kid back without the receipt. They won't. They won't. And it's very rude of them because this one's faulty. And it's like, you can't, it's like, you can't even speak to a manager about it. I mean, you can, but they won't help you. Now, she wasn't criminally abusive or neglectful of her kids. There's nothing that, like, CPS might have gone in and be like, "Mm, you need to clean your house. But she didn't not feed them. She didn't beat them. She didn't berate them necessarily. She just openly didn't like them, kind of like Rebecca Harkness openly disliked her own kids. Yes. This, there are going to be a lot of parallels I, between I, this I, and I, Rebecca I've Harkness. I've seen lots of parallels, and it's like, 
oh man, if if Sarah Jane had had a buttload of money, she probably would have been another Rebecca Hartness. Hart- yeah, and she does get some wealth for a while in this, but she's not good at it. <laughs> oh, neither, um, neither was Rebecca. <laughs> um, so like she just didn't want these kids, and so her husband divorced her for being a bad wife and a bad mother. Those are not my words; those are his words in the documents. Because apparently, you could put that in the documents back in the 1950s or 60s, whenever this was. But despite saying, "Oh, I'm leaving her because she's a bad wife," he didn't try to get the kids from her. He just left them. But then he was like, oh, I'm a man in the 1950s. I can't care for myself. So they got back together. I'm too busy wearing hats and smoking to care about the children. Uh, So then he was sent to Los Angeles by the Air Force. And finally, finally, for the first time, Sarah Jane was in a place where she wasn't totally miserable. Because she's in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is right by Hollywood. And all she ever wanted was to be famous. So... She actually somehow managed to get to know actors and directors in the Hollywood scene and started hanging out with them. So, like, maybe things are looking up. Maybe she's going to be fine. Then she got pregnant again. And um, then her kid was born. Melissa was her name. Uh, The baby was disabled. And this is the 50s. And they immediately institutionalized her. And by they, I mean, she called her mom and she's like, Mom, I don't feel like dealing with this. So her mom arranged for the institution. Her mom brought her to the institution. Her mom is the only one who ever checked up on this kid after that. I have no idea what happened to this kid in the long run, because even in Olaf Khan's will, he only mentioned the other three. So my guess is that this kid died, but there's no there's no record of it. And Sarah Jane just pretended she didn't exist forever after this. So she's abandoned one kid now. So Ruth, though, was like, okay, this is fucked up. Like, it's not fucked up to send your kid to an institution because it's the 1950s and this kid is disabled and that's what we do. But something's not right. Also, I didn't put this in my original notes, but her brother went out to visit her and he was like, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. First of all, she didn't recognize him when he came to the door. She was like, I don't know who you are. And he was like, okay, yeah, it's been a few years. You know, I'm in the military now. I probably look different. He walked in and the entire house was gingham the entire house apparently she'd gotten a really good deal on fabric i didn't mention earlier that she was really good seamstress her kids were all wearing stuff from this the couches had recovered with this the curtains were made of this it was the exact same fabric on everything in the house oh that is disturbing yeah and even okay remember 1950s and her brother went in and went this is weird See, I was worried about not being able to re- like be able to respond to stuff because it's the second time. There's just stuff she forgot to mention that she's bringing up now that's so much more disturbing and is adding layers to this. Yeah, it's like this is the 1950s where you know, for like stereotypically, men were kind of out of touch and they were like, "Oh, women, they'll do what they." Her brother was like, "No, this is not okay." So he <laughs> called his mom and he was like, "Mom, this is freaking me out. What do I do?" And she's like, "Oh, I got this." So mom went out there and she's like, "I'll help her. It'll be fine." No, it was not fine. The kids were being fed every day, but kind of when she remembered to do it the house was unsanitary if all gingham so she's like okay sarah jane what is going on and she's like i'm just i'm alone i'm really depressed i've got these kids that i don't want my husband is constantly away with the military i'm alone and this is not the life i wanted i don't know what to do with myself i don't know what to do with these kids and so her mom was like okay cool how about i take the kids for a few weeks take them back to west virginia we'll hang out you can kind of get yourself together because you know this is 1950s it's before therapy it's before any of that but you know it's a lot of people who get themselves together in six weeks yeah so she brought the kids back to west virginia and they suddenly had this family that loved them and they got to go out and do all these fun things and it was great and then they brought her she brought them back and sarah jane had not gotten her shit together they went back to the exact same thing 
So, yeah. Sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, Sarah then got pregnant again. I can't remember if I said that she had three kids a second ago. She had two at that point. Well, and Melissa, who wasn't part of this. Uh, She was pregnant again, and she's like, you know what? I'm done. And she left her husband. She divorces her husband while she's pregnant. And then she called her mom after she had this baby, and she's like, um... Yeah, can can we come home? Like, can I can I take the kids? Can we just can we just come home? I I need to figure stuff out. And her mom was like, Yeah, absolutely. Like, bring the kids. We will get you straightened out. We will figure this out because I'm a mom and that's what we're gonna do. So her brother is like, Okay, great. This is gonna like she had this really supportive family. She had a sister too who kind of went off on her own as well, and isn't in the story a whole lot. But she had a sister too. But her brothers were really supportive of her and like tried. And her brother goes to pick her up at the airport. And he waits and he waits plane is there the right flight anyways everybody's off the plane and there's no sarah jane there's no kid and the flight attendants get off they have a four-year-old a three-year-old and a nine-month-old with them what they do not have sarah jane okay it's i understand that like unaccompanied minors on planes are a thing and that's fine but that seems a bit excessive yeah four and three doesn't bother me nine months it i think it might be legal but it's not common or it's like, advised. The, like i wouldn't even trust the four-year-old to like hold a nine-month-old let alone like i have a feeling the flight attendants took care of took care of all that and i mean they had some variation on car seats at the time it wasn't you know what they have now but they had a thing that you could put your kid in so they were fine the flight attendants as they still do to this day did a really good job but sarah jane wasn't there so the family was like oh fuck so they immediately thought something horrible happened to her they weren't thinking she ditched her kids they called the police. They called anybody they could think of. They called her ex-husband who was like, I don't fucking care. I don't know where she is and I'm busy. Leave me alone. That's really how he reacted to the fact that his children just showed up unaccompanied. He's like, whatever, I don't care. You take them. They called her. Her phone was disconnected. And they finally had to admit, oh, she ran away again. Three months is how long it took for them to hear from her. And that's when she said, I'm going to come get them. I just need more time. They're like, okay. Okay, take some time, come back and get them. Three months later, the phone call stopped. Because for in the intervening three months, it was, I just need more time. I just, and they're like, guy, you need to come get your kids. They are not our kids. By this time, I think they had no kids left in the house. Maybe her youngest brother was still there. They're getting up there. Um, She's in her 50s. He's in his 60s, I think. They're ready to retire. They were done with the kid thing. They were like, we, you know, our kids are out. They're doing their thing. We can retire. And then all of a sudden there are three more kids living in their house and they don't know where the mom is. So they finally were like, okay, we're calling the cops. We're going to have her arrested for child abandonment. The police couldn't find her. There is no excuse for the police not being able to find her. They clearly didn't look. If they had looked, all of this probably could have been prevented later on. Like hearing about like the cops in this entire era, it's like, no wonder there were serial killers everywhere. They were so bad at their jobs yeah well this is still the 1950s or 60s so this is pre-prime serial killer okay these are just the ones who learned from these guys oh my god i didn't tell you this earlier the judge in her case this is relevant right now um he was like i'd like to give you the death penalty but our death penalty laws are so soft in this country if we had death penalty laws that actually scared people this stuff wouldn't happen why do you think we didn't have kidnappings for 20 years and i'm like really um there were lots of kidnappings there were lots like when was the Lindbergh baby? <laughs> yeah. Like, there were lots of kidnappings. I don't know what, like, the Sauter children were during this. I don't know what you're talking about. I actually, overall, like, I like the judge. I'm like, that is the weirdest possible thing you could say. That's a weird, t- that's a weird take, judge. So they were like, fuck it. So they put an intent to adopt in the newspaper, thinking that that would flush her out. She's like, oh, I'm actually going to lose my kids. It didn't. And they were like, hey, Sid, do you want your kids? And he was like, fuck no. Sid's a great guy. <laughs> yeah. Great guy. Class act. 
So they ended up adopting these kids and they raised them. Olaf died a few years later. Um, Ruth raised them. Um, and it sounds like she lived a long time. I couldn't really get a read on it. It sounds like she remarried. That's as far as I, and she moved to Ohio so they could go to better schools. Like she really, she went for it with these kids. Like she was going to make sure they ended up okay because they were scarred. Like no matter how much that they were loved by the rest of their family, which they were, your mom ditches you. It's going to fuck you up. Yeah. And especially if she ditches you in such an elaborate way. And so, like I said, the cops should have found her. We don't know a whole lot about what happened over the next decade, except for the fact that, you know, she enrolled in UCLA and got a degree. She, I feel like that should have made it very easy for the police to find you. Well, UCLA says, oh, we don't have a record of her, which is probably true because she had a series of fake identities. But the FBI knows for a fact that she was like just shy of a master's degree when she got arrested. This woman has these credentials under her name and... And she had her transcript sent to UCLA in 1950 and in 1970. Now, that is before and after this happened. But maybe they've been like, hey, she had these sent to UCLA a few years ago. Maybe she's attending UCLA still. Let's go look. That's quite the leap for, you know, these police officers to make. Yeah, they didn't look. No. They absolutely didn't look for her. It's like, oh, yeah, this is a priority for us. Now, we know for a fact she got this degree because she became a bookkeeper at RKO Studios in Hollywood. She was finally where she wanted to be. She wasn't acting, but she was in the thick of it. She was part of why these movie theater, these movie uh, studios ran well. She knew the directors. She knew the actors. And most importantly, she knew John O. Alberg, who she called Big John, and to this day who she says was the love of her life. John was a sound guy, and he had been nominated for nine Academy Awards, including for Citizen Kane and It's a Wonderful Life. Wow. I remember, she was born in 1930. He was 33 years older than her. Oof. So she is in her 30s at this time. He is about to hit 70 when all this goes down. And this is where we get the first definite case of her becoming someone else. Although, you know, those 10 years, she was someone else. She gets there and she's like, okay, I got to snag this John guy. How do I do it? And so she kind of like started listening around, finds out John is very good with the ladies. He's out with a different woman every night. He's getting around and she's like, okay, how do I, how do I get him to, to stop that and stay with me? She decides that she is going to find out who, who he is and be like him in that way. So she has no family now, no kids. She's never been married. She has no parents. She has no siblings. She's alone in the world. But she's also going to be a sweet girl from West Virginia who won't even kiss on the first date because that is improper. And she is not, she is not that kind of girl. So she put on this whole sweet home down West Virginia character and made him work for it. And it fucking worked. He was so manipulated into thinking that he had really achieved something this with this some, girl. This is some talented Mr. Ripley shit. Yeah. She put on this whole character to snag this man and somehow managed to ensure he didn't find out in this entire process of, you know, getting married and filing out paperwork, that she'd already been married twice. Because don't forget about the first guy. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the first so guy. So did I. He's not even named. But they get married. And it's actually like at their wedding, she goes, you know, the best thing is that, you know, together we now have somebody because both of us have never had a family. She is one of four kids, has had four kids herself. And both of her parents are very much still alive. And she's been married twice. But OK. And then a month later, she finds out she's pregnant and she runs away. John, the love of her life. She leaves him in L.A. and moves to San Francisco. She said the reason that she did it was because L.A. made her depressed. And John was like, I work. I can't I can't do my job from San Francisco. I have to stay here. They don't make the cords long enough. We have to. So but John, his baby was born on March 18th, 1966. 
he is nearly 70 years old. Like he's 69 years old at this point. He has no family and he really wanted this kid. He wanted Frederick in his life so badly that he was like, I will pay you whatever you want. We will, we need to have visitations. We need to have this like co-parenting agreement, which was of course not usual for the time, especially because like men were like, I guess I'll pay you. Um, but he wanted this kid in his life so badly. So he was doing all the shit for her. And every time, but every time she would just land in LA with the baby, she would just get so depressed. Then when uh, Frederick was 18 months old, she got married again to Dr. Willard J. Carmel Jr., a divorced doctor with two kids who are never mentioned in this story. Oh, she must have been the best stepmom. And Dr. Willard J. Carmel Jr. told her that she had to cut off contact with John because he didn't want a reminder that she had a past. John, as far as I can tell- There was a child! As far as I can tell, John never saw Frederick again. Oh. And John lived until 1984. Oh. So he lived until his kid was 18. They lived in the suburbiest suburbs to ever suburb. It was like fucking Stepford Town. Oh, gross. And uh, as you can imagine, she fit in real well there and got along with everybody. And that's the end of the story. Oh, yeah. She seems very agreeable. Yeah, She definitely wasn't eventually ostracized by the neighborhood to the point where her kid wasn't invited to playgroups. That didn't happen. Was... Oh my god, are we finding like a proto a proto Karen? Not exactly. She she was highly political. Uh, at the beginning, she was uh, trying to get this ultra conservative guy elected. I can't remember his name at this point. She had worked on his first campaign, and he'd won like hardcore. And she would go into these people's house and be like, "You know, you have to vote for him. You have to vote for him." I'm the reason he won last time. I did so much work on this that he won because of me exclusively. And he, she wouldn't leave them alone. This is like, I mean, she was basically like a home invader. <laughs> oh, God. She wouldn't leave until they signed. Like there was a woman who talked about how she like politely opened the door and Sarah Jane barges in and she was trying to get to like a pediatrician appointment. She was like, I got to go. And Sarah's like, no, you got to listen to my ideals. And she's like, no, I got to go. And she was late to the appointment. And then as time went on, Sarah Jane's big thing throughout her entire I like, life. I like, people like Sarah Jane are the reason that we don't answer the door. Yeah, it's not serial killers. It's people who want to talk to us. It's like, oh my God, they want to sell us a thing. Although there was that one time that that dude wouldn't leave us alone because solicitors totally come by at 830 at night. Uh-huh. And then I was like, I'm fucking watching him. And he went to our neighbor's house and he rings the doorbell and she's smarter than Austin. And so she doesn't answer the door. And then I see him start to crouch down and inspect her door hinges and look at her like keyhole and stuff. And I just yell, Austin, go outside. And so he slams the door open and this guy spins around, looks over and runs. And he's like, oh, shit, they can identify me. He didn't expect us to be watching him. I'm like, dude, you were suspicious as fuck. Oh, God, we were those people. (laughs) But I think it's a good time for a good reason this time. I'm okay. We are relatively nosy neighbors in the sense that if something's going on outside, we will watch. But honestly, for me, it's because I know too many people who've been hurt outside their own homes that I'm not going to allow it to happen if I can stop it. And this dude, it was Red Flag City. So I like Austin was like, we don't need to watch. I'm like, yes, we do. He's going to go fuck with somebody. And lo and behold, granted, she could have taken care of herself. Oh, yeah. um, I am afraid of her. I feel like we might have saved his life. Yeah. Like, what is she in her like late 60s, early 70s? And that woman could take me down. And I am five foot fucking eight. Mm. And she is not. Yeah. I, I, I love all of my neighbors, but she's intense. She is scary. And she is a former nun, so Oh, it's I don't she's she's awesome. And I wouldn't trade her for anyone, but I want to stay on her good side. Yeah. 
Um, so they actually started like not allowing her son in playgroups because of her for the most part. Although one woman was like, you know, he was a nice boy, but she kept dressing him like some e- kind of East Coast dandy. So the other kids were bullying him. I'm like, you know who can stop the kids from bullying him? Other you. Parents. Was you. he just wearing nothing but gingham? I don't know about the gingham. But he had like knee socks on and shit, like stuff that was not. Oh, he was like like a little fancy lad. He was a little fancy lad. Yeah. And she did make all of his clothes still. So um, but Sarah was like, OK. I'm not going to pay my babysitters, so I need a way to get rid of this kid because I've got important stuff to do. Because like I was trying to say, she uh, listened to the news constantly. Well, and you, Well, you need to pay your babysitters because they talk and then you'll never get a babysitter. That's what happened. Um, So she was like starting to get into the left side of politics. She was like, and now granted, this could be because either she actually did agree with it or because the ultra conservatives are starting to lose and she wants to be on the winning side. I don't know. And there's also the fact that these people, these young people who are on the left side of the politics are young and cool and like beautiful young people who are like, I don't trust anyone over 30. Fuck the man. And she's over 30 at this point. But she's like, yeah, but I'm fuck cool. The man. But I'm cool. I, I can be cool. I'm hip. I'm with it. <laughs> Hello, fellow kids. <laughs> so she started leading into this and started like scaring her neighbors with this after that. Now her neighbors actually were kind of interested in this. Like they would have little like mommy groups where they would talk about this stuff and it pissed Sarah off that they were all talk and no action. So she's like, I'm going to take action, but I can't get a babysitter. So I'm going to enroll my kid in a school that costs $500 a month or $3,400 a month now or $34,000 for a 10 month school year because not because it's a good school, but because they have a seven to three day and then a three to six p.m. after school program and a boarding option where you can dump him off for two weeks. Oh, that sounds like the perfect school for Sarah Jane. And so that's where she enrolled him so she could go do her liberal politics stuff and just not have to deal with him. And what, what about her husband? Oh, that's right. Never mind. Well, Frederick's not his kid for one. Yeah. And this is the 50s and well, 60s now. And also, um, I mean, his own kids don't factor into the story. So oh, no. so she's starting to get more and more involved. And obviously the kid, the school can't take him all the time. So she's like, shit, there's a time like she wanted to go to something at the last minute and she had fucking Frederick. And she's like, oh, what do I do with this kid? Not, uh, Frederick's, Frederick's a vic- victim in the story. So, I mean, that's from her voice, not mine. And so she's like, okay. Um, she takes him and marches into an Episcopalian church. <laughs> now, at this point, she was raised Baptist, and in, in one of her early shows of independence, she declared on Sunday morning that she was not going to go to church with her family, but she was going to go to the Methodist church. And they were like, okay, fine. I think she's probably not happy that they were like, okay, fine, for the most part. Um, she marches this little boy into an Episcopalian church and says, I've been Episcopalian my whole life, and your church has never done anything for me. You're going to do something for me now. You are going to watch my kid overnight. <laughs> And the reverend goes, absolutely, absolutely. Like, you you clearly have some place you have to be. There's something going on. I will absolutely watch your kid overnight. She's never met this guy before. She's never been an Episcopalian before. So the the reverend was like, you know, he was a nice kid. He I found a place for him to sleep in the church. We read some stories from the Bible. He ate his snacks. He went to sleep. Well, Sarah Jane's thing got over early. So she just barges back into the church, grabs her sleeping ass kid and hauls him out of there. It's the only time she ever went to an Episcopalian church. That's kind of wonderful. Now, at some point during this, she filed for divorce from Carmel. Uh, It wasn't pretty. They each had a temporary restraining order against each other so they could stop harassing each other, which did not work. And they started to realize, because they were trying to figure out what to do with the house. And she ended up living in the house and he had to pay her alimony while she was living in the house. They weren't divorced yet. And they had to keep paying for the mortgage payments and all that shit. So he's off living in a condo. And then they start to look at the financials. Now, she's an accountant. And they realize, oh, she has not been paying taxes. (laughs) 
she has not paid the HOA fees. Now, granted, though, the reason she did not pay the HOA fees was that her petty ass Karen neighbors complained that she painted her door purple. And then the HOA head called and was like, you have to repaint your door to a boring color. And she cussed him the fuck out. And he hung up. And his reasoning was not she refused to abide by our rules. It was, I have never heard a woman talk that way. And I was highly offensive to me. Okay, so you pulled me back in. I'm on her side again. I am on Team Sarah. Well, like, seriously, everybody's like, oh, HOAs are fine. I'm like, okay, first of all, they exist to keep people of color out of your neighborhood and Jewish people out of your neighborhood, but okay. And also, um, I've never met a person who is actually benefiting from them. Like, people no. are like, oh, they arrange for lawn maintenance. For nope. who? I've never no. met somebody yeah, who's H- doing that. I have never heard a good thing about HOAs. I hear theoretical good things. Or, like, basically, it's, like, ways to be, have a fake social club and, like, be petty over neighbors' shit. It's like, well, you know, I complained to my HOA about my neighbor having a bag of leaves in his front yard. Yeah, the only valid thing in our neighborhood that I can think of for an HOA is that we have this one neighbor who has bushes that cover up the entire sidewalk. And, honest to God, I want to take a saw over there and take them down myself because I get scratched to hell every single time I try to walk by. My other option is to walk in the street. And this is a place where semi-trucks kind of come and go. And so that pisses me off. And also, though, why is our neighborhood guy, because we don't have watch, we've got like these douchebags who just kind of monitor shit. Why is he telling our neighbors that they can't, you know, defrost their broken fridge in their yard, but they're not making them unblock the sidewalk that wheelchairs can't get by? I don't know. Like, it's like, granted, it's a big ass house. I bet that. I bet he lives there. Oh, I bet someone important lives there, and the city's like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. So there's all this financial stuff happening. She hasn't been paying these bills. They are responsible for these bills. They can't actually like finish all of this until everything is paid off. But that's not the crux of it. So she and Big John separated, and she married uh, Carmel eighteen months later. Later, did I ever say they got divorced? Oh no, no, you didn't. She was still married to Big John (laughs) during all of this. So this is that time I mentioned at the top where she was known to have committed a crime, but she was never technically convicted of the crime in a traditional sense. But this did result in her getting basically nothing out of this uh, out of this. And her name was reverted to her previous name. So she is not more at this. Like, legally, she is not more. Um, She is less. She is. um, But now she is known to have had this double life this whole time. Oh, and she also played the sweet girl from West Virginia who's been wronged by the men in her life with Carmel. That's how she got this guy. (laughs) She always relied, depended upon the kindness of strangers. Always relied on the kindness of strangers. It's a different different part of the country. Um, So all this going on and then Patty Hearst happened. Now, I mentioned Patty Hearst a few episodes ago on our Stockholm Syndrome episode. She is the one who was 19. She was uh, Randolph Hearst's daughter. She was super, super wealthy and got kidnapped by the SLA and they made these demands of her dad that he couldn't actually afford to do. No matter how wealthy he was, he couldn't afford it, which this was give $70 worth of free food to every poor person in California. That would have been about $400 million in the 1960s. Which is a lot. an unfathomable amount of yes. money. But he's like, okay, how about this instead? I will donate $2 million to people in need, Penn, and I will help them run things. And then he had um, Ludlow Kramer, who was in charge of this. He came on TV and he was like, okay, we need volunteers. So Sarah Jane was like, I'm a fucking accountant. I can volunteer for this. I can be useful. This is two hours away from her. And she drives two hours every single day to get to Penn and go home. Like two hours both ways. 
Um, she was not what they were used to. She showed up to go uh, apply for this volunteer position. She walks up to them. Let's see if the ghost talks to us again. She went in, this group of young hippies, and she goes, God sent me to help. Okay, no ghost no this ghost. time. Um, well, this one, they were like, um, okay, lady, go sit down. But she actually was brought on as a volunteer accountant because they did need one. Well, within a couple of weeks, Sarah Jane Moore, who was going by Moore now, and she did this with a fake social security number, a fake address, and refusing to give a phone number. They did run a background check. She, They ran a background check on her, and the FBI also ran a background check on her later, which we'll talk about. <laughs> um, but within a couple of weeks, she decided, I can do this better than you. So she decided to take over all the public relations. And she decided she was everybody's supervisor. You've met this person before. Oh, yes. Yes, I have. I have worked with a few Sarah Janes. So she would walk through and you never knew which Sarah Jane you were getting. Someday she'd walk through and tell you to fuck off and that you're bothering her and that her work is too important to talk to you. And she would scream at everybody and she would throw tantrums if they tried to talk to her. And then the other day she'd walk in and be like, you guys are great. You're amazing. The work we're doing is so important. The world, we're saving the world, guys. We're saving the world. They didn't know what they were dealing with. And she also did this like funny little thing where people would be like, hey, I need the accounts payable stuff. And she was too busy. I'll get it to you tomorrow. I need these checks. I'll get it to you tomorrow. She did not get it to them tomorrow. Tomorrow and tomorrow creeped in its petty pace from day to day. And uh, they never got their stuff. Uh, oh, Sarah Jane Moore. That was the... the blah, blah. I missed. I skipped over this. Uh, it might have been her mother's maiden name. We don't know. It might have been the name of one of her high school classmates who was like, yes, I am also... I am Sarah Moore. This is weird. And then uh, they also found an ID from a woman in San Jose named Sarah Moore that was in her bag. They don't really know where she got it from, where she got probably, the name probably, from. Probably stole someone's wallet and just said, that's me now. Uh, so... They had Charles Bates of the FBI and the dude who ran Penn. They both supposedly did background checks on every single person in there because because of the nature of this, the FBI is involved. So they have Randolph Hearst people running background checks. They have the FBI running background checks because any of these people could also be involved with the SLA and Patty Hearst. So these background checks are run. This is the days before computers. So they're relying on faith for several weeks before these background checks come back. So nobody realized that Sarah Jane Moore had given them a fake number or a fake social security number, a fake address, and nobody really questioned the phone thing, apparently. This Charles Bates guy who ran the background check noticed that she'd been talking to this guy named Popeye Jackson. Popeye Jackson was an ex-con who did stuff like this, and... He believed, Charles Bates believed, that Popeye Jackson would know stuff about the SLA and would be able to maybe lead them to Patty Hearst. But there wasn't a safe way just for the FBI to be like, hey, Popeye, tell me stuff. So he was like, hey, Sarah, talk to me for a second. And she's like, okay. And he goes, we need an FBI informant and we want you to do it. This totally random lady who they've not finished running a background check on, who has wildly erratic behavior and is refusing to hand over financial information to the people she is running the finances for, they decide that she is an FBI informant now. And they don't train her. They just say, hey, uh, that Popeye guy, we need you to find out everything you can about him and find out, you know, what he knows about Patty Hearst and these gang wars that are about to start. Oh, there are gang wars. There are stolen trucks that are happening outside this place. This whole thing is a shit show. Like, it sounds like this nice little organ. No, because uh, so many ex-cons were running this. They were from rival gangs. <laughs> Nice. This whole thing, like there's stuff here that I didn't tell Austin the first time around, but I'm 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 peppering it in now. Yeah, when we hear about this kind of stuff in history classes, they leave out the seedier details. Well, we didn't even we would never have learned about this in history class because so far the FBI and the police look like fucking idiots. 
So, like, by this time, the reason they were so interested in Patty Hearst was not because they wanted to get this rich guy's daughter back, but because Patty Hearst had robbed a bank by this point. And the FBI was looking to take her out along with the SLA. They didn't care dead or alive. They were going to they were going to get her out. And so they were like, go find out what this Popeye guy knows. And then one day when she'd already agreed to do this, she walked into Penn and found all the higher ups going through her desk. And she's like, what the fuck, guys? That is my desk. You can't. She lost it. She is screaming. She is fighting with them. She's saying that's my personal stuff. Uh, I'm the only one who knows how to do this. You guys will fail without me. They found a bunch of shit in there that basically showed that she had not been handling the finances correctly. I didn't dig too deeply into it, but it was some sketchy shit. And they were like, yeah, bye. And she's like, but you're going to fail without me. No, we won't. Bye. They did fail not long after, but it had nothing to do with her. Um, I would say that she would beg to differ. And she was dragged out by security. And later that day, her background check came in. And they figured out that Sarah Jane Moore did not exist. And the thing is, she had not given a phone number and she had left a fake address. They couldn't find her. <laughs> Except she's an FBI informant. So of course they could find her. They just didn't bother. <laughs> The fact that this woman was doing shady financial stuff with a charity and the FBI knew where she was. And this charity was part of a major FBI operation. Didn't matter. (laughs) Didn't matter. The FBI, though, was like, okay, Sarah Jane, you need to find a way to keep hanging out with Popeye Jackson because we still want you to do this. You already built up this thing with him. So she started, like, joining these leftist groups and hanging out with Popeye Jackson. She didn't get a whole lot from him about the Patty Hearst stuff. But, um... The FBI were not the only ones who had noticed that she was hanging out with Popeye Jackson. Randolph Hearst, Patty Hearst's dad, had also noticed, hey, this girl's hanging out with uh, Popeye Jackson a lot, and I feel like he knows where my daughter is. So he goes up to, to Sarah Jane. He's like, I need an informant. <laughs> and she's like, okay, cool. So she is now an informant for the FBI who wants Patty Hearst dead and Randolph Hearst who wants Patty Hearst back alive. And she is informing on Popeye Jackson equally to both of them and Neither side knows. She has zero training in being an informant, and she still manages to trick both Randolph Hearst and the FBI. Although the FBI, she does eventually tell them. That's the thing. She tells people this stuff. They don't find out. She's, like, tired of them not finding out. And she's like, okay, guys, here's the fucking deal. So she plays both sides during this. She is a fucking (laughs) double agent. And so with this, she starts joining more and more leftist groups and being a super intense perfectionist, as she was well known as even at this point, it's actually a big point in her favor because nobody thinks it's weird that she takes role at every event. Nobody thinks it's weird that she takes copious notes at every event and she's writing down who says what. (laughs) Nobody thinks it's weird. Oh, my God. Everyone is so stupid. Stupid during all of this. Oh, my God. And then she reports all this information back to the FBI and to Randall Hearst. The thing is, during this, though, she's starting to agree with the leftist groups. Remember, she has not been trained by the FBI. She doesn't know how to compartmentalize any of this information. She's starting to realize, oh, shit. So they're right. They're here talking about. They're making a lot of good points. Yeah, they're making a lot of good points. She's like, so we're talking about civil rights. We're talking about women's rights. We're talking about uh, equal opportunities. We're talking about people who are hungry. Why is the FBI against this was her thought. And she also was like, no, these people aren't any scarier than the things that they're fighting against. And she's like. Not all of them want to blow anything up. A bunch of them don't. And the ones that do, I mean, there are good people on both sides. No, don't blow shit up. Yes, please don't make things explode unless your job is doing that in a safe and respectful manner. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But she still had a job to do, so she kept doing it. And after a while, things started really going south for the SLA. So they were like, okay, we don't really want you to focus on Popeye Jackson anymore. We want you to focus on this guy named Tom. Now, Tom is not his real name. Sarah Jane has that guy. I I believe that they've mentioned he's dead now, but she still will not tell anybody who Tom was. Um, All she'll say is he was a leader in several of these movements. He was an integral part to all of them operating and that he did not participate in any guerrilla or violent tactics, although he was fine with them, which is not enough information for us to even guess who this could be. At this point, her annulment had finally ended and she had to move out of her suburban home, which was two hours away, like I said, anyway. And she ended up in urban San Francisco in a mostly Spanish speaking neighborhood, which was fine because she was fluent and she actually was like happy. She loved this. She is in the thick of it. She's with these people who are actually kind of like accepting her at this point because like, oh, cool, you speak Spanish. You're just kind of doing your thing she's involved with the politics that people over there kind of agree with like she's actually kind of getting along okay she gets a job in a linoleum store and she's kind of living this ideal radical left life she's going to all these meetings she has a job she's living around people who are like interesting and different from her she's kind of living the radical left dream and um she keeps informing on them (laughs) <laughs> By this time, Randolph Hearst is kind of out of the picture, I think. It's still the FBI. And the FBI was like, okay, we also want you to start investigating these other groups. Here's a list. It's kind of a, we think that this is a group that kind of does some stuff. But We're worried the Antifas are going to do a crime. That's 100% what it was. They were like, we've got these vaguely defined groups that may or may not exist. You need to go to every single one of their meetings and you'll be in trouble if you don't. And she's like, but they're not, they don't exist. I can't go to meetings that don't exist. And also, you guys didn't train me how to find out when meetings for places that do exist are happening. So she started having to make these like really high up powerful contacts within the radical left to find out what these other groups actually were and when they were meeting. And then she would go to them and they'd be like, who is this middle-aged suburban white lady that is at our meetings? Because everybody else is still pretty much in their 20s, maybe early 30s. She's like pushing on 40 at this point. And she is like the perfectly qualified suburban housewife. And so she sticks out like a sore thumb. So she would come in and be like, if they started getting suspicious, she'd be like, I'm an accountant. And be like, oh, we actually we do need one of those because nobody else here has that. Uh, some of the some of them still were like uh, leave, but for the most part they were like yeah okay we can use an accountant. And then she was promoted from informant to potential security informant. Oh. She was promoted, still with no training. She began to actually feel guilty though because she had become friends with these people, including her primary target, Tom. So she went to Tom and said, "Okay, I'm telling you what I'm doing." She told Tom, this leader of the of all of these groups, that she was an FBI informant, and he says, "Okay." um... Well, maybe you should stop because uh, I'm not going to kill you, but I can't promise nobody else here will when they find out and they will find out. And also, like, I'm going to let you go, but you can never tell anybody who I am, which is why to this day, he's just Tom. And Tom is probably not his actual name. Do you think he's Tom? He became Tom from MySpace? Do we think Tom exists? From MySpace? Either of them. No. Actually, I think the FBI has confirmed that Tom was real. I think they've also kept it quiet because Sarah Jane's life was in danger and they still can't, you know, have her eliminated. Um, Nor would they want to because she's an interesting look into the psyche of attempted assassins. So he's like, okay, but you need to stop being an informant because somebody's going to find out and you're going to die. And she's like, okay, cool. Um, I can't because I'm also an informant for the police department and for ATF. What the fuck? She failed a background test. Her identity is not real. And they're all like, okay, cool. So we know that you can be a spy already. You can fake your identity. That's all we need. I feel like she was just secretly a spy. This is like some Jason Bourne shit. Well, I think she would have been an excellent spy if she had been told when she was 18 that that was an option. Honestly, this whole story would be different. She probably would have made a 
fucking kick-ass spy. If they had just brought her in and trained her. She'd have been such a good spy, we'd have never heard of her. And she also could have been an assassin, but like a legal one. Well, kind of legal-ish. Like, nobody seemed to mind that she had failed this background check, and they knew because the FBI had run one, too, and they were like, oh, fake social security number. Cool. Wink. Um, Ultimately, Sarah Jane told her handler that she was in too deep. And she was not starting to not be trusted by the groups they'd infiltrated. They were starting to suspect shit. And she told him, oh, by the way, I told Tom. And he was like, what the fuck, lady? You went in and you're in the situation that you know is dangerous and you tell the big guy that you are doing this. You, We can't protect you from this. And you just put all of us at risk. You put all of our other agents at risk. So you put God knows many people at risk. They truly believe these people were going to blow up the world. Like you, you comp- compromised national security here. Um, you're fired. Get the fuck out of our faces. We can't protect you. Peace. So she's like, okay, cool. Um, They're like, also get out of the game while you still can because we're not protecting you. And she's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. So she kept making higher up and higher up contacts. Because <laughs> uh, Sarah Jane don't quit. She was getting so much attention. Yes. Like, oh my God, you guys. And a few months later, the FBI came back. We're like, we're sorry, Sarah, come back. It's like, Ugh, I don't know. I IDK. I just hate drama. Sarah Jane says this is the first time they had ever done this. They'd ever come back. I'm like, how would you know? Did they tell you? No. They might have. It's like, please, they probably or figured out her whole thing. That it's could like, be it. It could have been an ego stroke. But she was suspected by this point and even kicked out of some of the groups that she was supposed to be informing on. Despite this, she began to believe more and more that these groups were in the right and the FBI was in the wrong. But she continued to report on the FBI. And... She became a double agent again for the leftist groups and reported on the FBI to the leftist groups. So before she was like, I'm reporting on Popeye Jackson to the FBI and Randolph Hearst. And now she's like, I'm reporting on the leftist groups to the FBI and I'm reporting on the FBI and the police department and the ATF to the leftist groups. She's just like, oh, my God, all of the gossip. She's like, this is nuts. Yeah, it's like she's a fucking tea factory. She's just running around town. She is the Boston Tea Party herself. So she told the groups, because they, they'd figured out by this point. She's like, I'm not working for the FBI anymore, guys. Like, they found out that you found out. I told them that I told Tom. They're, they kicked me out. They're like, okay, cool. Um, which, of course, was not the truth. And the thing is, though, she sort of believed the leftist group. She really hated the FBI at this point. But she didn't feel bad about doing this to either side. She said that the bureau folks were assholes who labeled anyone caring about human rights and dignity as dupes of foreign governments. But, and this is kind of what you said a minute ago, here I was walking around in an an admitted FBI informant, and if they were so goddamn stupid as to talk to me, they needed to be taught a lesson. So she didn't feel bad about either side, because she's like, they made their choices, why are they trusting me? And I'm like, that is a good point, Sarah Jane. Excellent That is a good point, because you know that they know you failed a background check. (laughs) I mean, the, the leftist groups probably don't know that, but... I mean, they might. And then we go back to Popeye Jackson. Well, I'm not getting this, like, banter that I need to keep my pace going. We had more banter going this... We got more banter this time than we did. I think it's because we're trying to make it more interesting for ourselves. Forgetting that the people at home have not heard this the first time. (laughs) You guys are getting the director's cut? Um, So Popeye Jackson, her initial target, was killed. Should I tell them how he was killed? You have to. So this is why Austin thought I was talking about a modern true crime case. Popeye Jackson, because of the life he was living, was always, always, always on high alert. Everybody was like, if you are within a mile of Popeye Jackson, he will smell you coming. Unless, um, you know, he was taken out in a car, like boom, 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 lots of gunshots. And so was the girl he was on a date with. He was shot a lot of times. She was shot a couple times. And when they opened the door to, you know, find them, her head was buried in his lap. (laughs) 
They didn't actually say that his pants weren't on, but it was heavily implied. If not, if they were at least like, at the very least, they were undone. Yeah. Meanwhile, his pregnant girlfriend was upstairs in their apartment. This was in front of his own apartment. Do you think she did it? No. Okay. But the FBI was like, oh, Popeye Jackson, he was a snitch. We didn't kill him. The left killed him. They found out that he was a snitch, that they killed him. And Sarah Jane got pissed because Sarah Jane knew Popeye Jackson and Popeye Jackson ain't no snitch. You know who is a snitch? Who is not getting the recognition she deserves for it? Sarah. Sarah Jane Moore. She is not getting this press coverage for her excellent snitching work. She is playing both sides. Um, she has the left that is learning about the FBI and all the rest. She has the FBI who's learning about all the left groups. Why is she not the one making the news for being a snitch? Yeah. Who, who do you have to fuck Honestly, around here to like, get, she to get the like news? She is like a high quality snitch. So she was like, hey, FBI handler, I'm going to go do an interview with a newspaper. And he was like, excuse me very much. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, um, I'm going to go clear Popeye's name because he was not a snitch. And also I'm going to tell them what I'm doing. And he's like, are you dumb? Do you, do you not understand how this is going to end? And she's like, I'm Sarah Jane, bitches. I'm going to be fine. The world can't touch me, um, which already... so far has been true. She's like, I've already done this twice. Yeah, she, she's like, I fooled you. I fooled Randolph Hearst. I fooled the left groups. I had a bunch of kids and they're out of running where they're like, what? She's like, never mind. I fooled and... the FBI a second time. So she has nothing's ever touched her before. And they're like, you understand that we will not protect you not that we can't we fucking won't and the leftists are not going to be pleased with you and frankly we're not going to be pleased with you because you doing this puts all of us at risk you are not the only agent in the field and she's like yeah but interview so she went and did the interview <laughs> and uh shockingly to uh nobody but her immediately there were death threats all over the place and she had to go into hiding oh my god you guys so she got a 44 revolver for protection. That is important. And she ran off with Frederick because he's apparently still around during all of this. And they had to hide. They had to basically be squatters in some apartment. They had to sleep in sleeping bags on the floor so they couldn't be seen through the windows. But she wanted him to have some kind of normalcy. So she enrolled him in a summer school program. He had to like belly crawl in and out of the apartment. Oh, God. He had to have a fake name. He had to have a fake background story. He couldn't let his friends know where he lived. He couldn't let his friends know who his mom was. This is, how old is he? Nine. He's nine and he has to live this double life that his mom has been doing her whole life. But that's not him. Well, He's a know, different living person. Living a double life worked out great for Hannah Montana. I don't see why this kid's complaining. She did get the best of both worlds. Yeah. He wasn't complaining, according to her. He, apparently, he loved for a full year having to belly crawl in out of the apartment every day and not oh. have his friends know who he was. Oh, yeah. That's great fun. Every nine-year-old wants that. So at this point, she's considered a threat by both the FBI and the group she'd infiltrated. The connections she had made were gone. The protection she had was gone. Any sense of belonging that she had finally achieved was gone. I think this is the point where she'd be doing the YouTube apology video. Oh, you guys. I, I just didn't understand at the time, but I've grown up a lot. And I guess I'm sorry. I mean, I'm really sorry for how you interpreted what I said. I, I am not mean... responsible for you. I didn't mean for this to hurt my fans and my and my ad revenue. Yeah, like my, my advertisers, I'm really, really sorry to you. So if you could like just let me sell your hand creams again. Even my pillow stopped selling with me. <laughs> my pillow. 
So though she hadn't felt bad about serving as an agent against either side, it seems that what the FBI did was what stung more. She felt that they had used her, they had manipulated her, and perhaps most importantly, and she's not wrong here, they had never trained her. So she blames them. Because she's like, they just said, go inform on us for us. She, They didn't tell me how to protect myself. They didn't tell me how to interact with people. They didn't tell me how to square off my brain so that I wouldn't start believing them. They knew that these were like what they thought were brainwashing groups. They just sent me in there and tried to make me do this. Okay. And she's not wrong. There are two ways that this could have ended. Just two. She was either going to start believing them and join the left or the left was going to find out and they were going to kill her. Sounds like the FBI was pretty okay with them killing her. They didn't really think the other was going to happen. They didn't realize she was actually going to be good at this. Um, But at the same time, she was like, it's the FBI's fault. It's the FBI's fault. The America is broken. This is terrible. It's all America's fault. But she also thought China's social situation was the ideal example of freedom from op- from oppression at the time. Wasn't this like mere moments after the Cultural Re- Revolution? It is the 1960s. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. So she actually thought like China, perfect example of freedom from oppression and suppression and they had a great equality for all. So I'm not sure she's the one I want to listen to on this either. Uh-uh. And I feel like the leftist groups also weren't like, yeah, in 40 years, we won't be able to use Twitter. That sounds great. We have so. our own separate Twitter that's heavily censored. Mm-hmm. So she's feeling lost and she's feeling used. So she went out to find a new community. And that's how she found Tribal Fum, also called the Wellsprings Commune. And you know, when something is called Commune, it is not where you want to be. I looked them up. I was trying to get more information for you guys. And... <laughs> There were some short newspaper articles, like there was a shootout, the members of this commune, the members of Tribal Thumb, they got into a shootout, they died, they died, they died. I was like, well, that doesn't tell me anything. So I found an article that didn't tell me much, and it was like, subscribe for more. This website was trackingterrorism.org. I was like, okay, cool, it's got a one-week free subscription, I can can sign up for this and get you guys all the information. And they were like, okay, for an individual membership that is not part of like a, a, you know, crime-fighting group... We'll get back to you in 24 hours of the series of invasive questions. I'm like, no, no, thank you. No, thank you. I don't care about my podcast that much. So I don't want to be on another list. So sorry, guys. But uh, Tribal Thumb, the world, the word cult came up. The word Mansons came up. So that's all I think you need to know about them. On September 20th, 1975, the details of Ford's visit to San Francisco were laid out in the newspaper. Sarah was like, this is my chance, bitches. So she calls the San Francisco Police Department Inspector Jack O'Shea and told him she was tired of being bothered by the police and that she was going to go to the place. um, She was going to go to Stanford and find out if the security was really being applied equally to the left and the right. And Jack O'Shea was like, well, fuck, do I care if you're going to stand? Oh, shit. Because he is speaking at Stanford tomorrow. And she just told me she is going to go to Stanford tomorrow. And just two weeks ago, Squeaky Frome shot up this guy. Shit. So he's like, okay, um, how you doing that? How you doing that, hun? And he's like, she's like, well, I don't like how you guys are treating me. And I don't think you're applying these rules equally to people on the left and to the right. So I'm just going to go find out. And he's like, okay, cool. Um, cool. Have a good day. And then he started calling everybody else. He's like, hey, so, uh, not Social Security, Secret Service, FBI, ATF. Hey, your girl, Sarah Jane Moore, she got a gun and uh, we're going to have another squeaky from on our hands. And they're like, cool, cool, cool. Um, I'm, I'm sure they leapt into immediate action. They did call the police in the surrounding areas and told them to keep an eye out for Sarah Jane Moore. And ATF was like, hey, we're already going to be working with her tomorrow. So, I mean, I guess we can keep an eye on her. And the Secret Service was like, what else? I mean, this can't be. It's just a woman. He's like, hey, squeaky from. Nope, just a woman. Women don't do this. Squeaky from. Nope. Didn't happen. She's in jail right now. Nope. 
So in this phone call, though, Sarah Jane said to him, I'm going to ask you something that will make you recoil in horror. Can you have me arrested? So she's trying to feel out because she is she's back to being an informant at this point, guys. Uh, she's working <laughs> with the ATF and they were like, can I she was basically saying, can I even get in trouble for this since I'm a fucking informant? And he and he responded with, if you carry a concealed weapon to Stanford, you will be arrested. So he isn't saying if you go to Stanford, it's if you bring your fucking gun. If you commit this crime, you'll be arrested. She actually hasn't said that she's going to commit a crime. She's just going to go test the security, which could be like, I'm just going to go write down some notes and find out if you are talking to people the same. Like, so he very clearly was, if you bring your gun, yes, I will have your ass thrown in jail. Um, so he called, they call all these people and he said to the Secret Service, like, hey, could you just go pick her up? Like, we know this is going on. Can you go just hold her? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. They never even stopped by to, like, talk to her. They're like, woman. Squeaky from. That was that was two weeks ago. Remember two weeks ago? So O'Shea met with her. And he was like, so Sarah Jane, you, you got your gun? And she's like, yeah. And she gets that out of her purse. She's like, look at that gun. And he's like, great. Um, Have a good day. Enjoy your day. And she left the coffee shop. And he called the Mission District Police and was like, so remember yesterday when I told you that Sarah Jane was going to bring her gun to Stanford? Yeah, she has her gun and uh, she's got a little, little meeting to go to, but then she's going to Stanford. And they're like, oh, shit, I guess we should have put out this warrant yesterday when she did this. <laughs> so they started writing up a warrant. <laughs> Meanwhile, she goes off to uh, her location that she's supposed to be doing some informing stuff for the ATF, which is the guy who sold her the gun in the first place because she did not own this gun legally. <laughs> So she's going to go inform on the guy who sold her the gun in the first place, who somehow didn't figure out that's what's happening during this because he sells her another gun tomorrow. God. I don't know. What, like, honest to God, this woman is fucking, she's a genius. She is so smart and it could have been used for so much good. Even but if she is. It wasn't even used for like evil. It was used for. She abandoned her children, Austin. Yeah, it was evil. She abandoned poor big John, who is still alive. Not today, but he's still alive at this point in the story. She she hurt all, so many people. So many people got hurt because she had a character to play. Yeah. But as I'm like, she managed to trick so many people. And I'm not going to say anything nice about it other than it shows that you're not supposed to say that criminals are smart. But that actually is a dangerous thing to say, to not say. Because if we start thinking all criminals are stupid, we get complacent. Mm -hmm. She's fucking brilliant. Yeah. And that's terrifying. And we should all be aware that smart people are the more successful criminals. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the dumb ones are just the ones that get caught. Yeah. And no, like she has left a whole lot of like rubble in her wake at this point and no one's caught her. She has failed a background check given to her by the FBI and no one has stopped her. She is untouchable. I don't know what she was doing to convince them this was fine. But she was doing something. So as they processed her warrant, she went to the gun place with the ATF. The police did manage to show up in the 11th hour, confiscate her gun and read her her rights. But as they read her her rights, this woman comes out and she's like, where are you going? Like, we're taking her to jail. She's like, cool, I'm coming. And just gets in the fucking car with her. Apparently, you're going to be like, oh, you're arresting my friend. All right, I'm coming too. What? No one ever found out who this woman was. They know for a fact she's a member of Tribal Thumb. They know for a fact she was Sarah Jane's roommate for a while. Chancellor of the FBI does know, but her name has never been put out there. She just went to jail with her. She, was not, she wasn't on charges herself. She just kind of hung out. And people are surprised we never caught Zodiac. <laughs> oh, please. I know who Zodiac was. Did you, see that, did you see that there are more? You probably didn't. Uh, more of his ciphers are getting deciphered right now. I saw that. It was like a few weeks ago. No, more of them. More of them? It's a woman who is a member of a true crime, or she's the 
friend of a member of a true crime group I'm in. And she's just... She's doing it by hand. Damn. As opposed to the other guys who did it by computer. She figured out a couple of things and it looks like she's doing it by hand, if I'm understanding it correctly. Neat. Uh, Edward Edwards. So <laughs> they brought her in. She hung out of the police department and a lieutenant called the Secret Service and they were like, hey, do you want us to hold her until you guys can like come talk to her at the end of the day? What do you want us to do? And they're like, no, we're fine. Send her home. She's a woman. <laughs> well, oh, what's she going to do? Bake at him? <laughs> so she was released at four o'clock. Which, luckily, was right when Ford started his speech. There was no way. It was 35 minutes away. She could not get there in time to do any damage, which is probably part of the why they held her there. And she even accused Jack O'Shea of exactly that the next day. And he was like, I had nothing to do with them letting you go. I told them to fucking hold you. <laughs> he didn't say that, but that was what he but said. She did that night. The Secret Service did show up and they were like, hey, Sarah Jane, what's up? And she's like, not much. Like, You going to hurt the president? No. Okay, bye. They didn't surveil her afterwards. They just assumed that this suburban 45-year-old housewife who was always incredibly put together and looked like a suburban 45-year-old housewife could not possibly have any designs on the president. Plus, they confiscated her gun. What are they, What is she going to do? Buy well, another one. This is America. And they also didn't shut down the place where she had originally gotten her gun illegally and they knew that she knew the guy because she was fucking informing on him, apparently. So many things went wrong here. Like, how did Ford survive this? Well, I'll talk about why Ford survived this, but he shouldn't have. Yeah. So many people fucked up along the way. So we get to September 22nd, which is the day she attempted to assassinate Gerald Ford. She called a member of the Secret Service. First thing, she wakes up and she goes, basically, it kind of sounds like she said, I need someone to stop me. She called Secret Service. They didn't answer. She called the FBI. They didn't answer. She called Jack O'Shea. And they're like, oh, he's not in yet. Can I take a message? Nope. Then she called the guy who sold her the gun. And she's like, hey, I need a gun for a friend. And he's like, I don't do that. You need, like, I need your friend. And he goes, okay, I need a gun for myself. And he's like, okay, that sounds normal. So he went and she bought a, another gun, a... I think it was a 38 this time. And he said that she was totally normal. She was acting. She was like, they took my gun. I need a new gun. And he's like, cool, new gun. The gun was most likely sold to him illegally by a police officer. Not as part of a sting. The police officer just wanted to get rid of his personal weapon. God. She went straight from there to the St. Francis Hotel at Union Square. She later said that the whole time she was hoping someone would stop her. She, she sped the whole way. She loaded her gun in her lap while she drove. But there was nobody. And it's not a short drive, which also means that she had plenty of time to stop herself. She had plenty of time to go, you know, I'm just not going to shoot the I president today. I feel like Sarah Jane is not the type of person who would ever stop herself. Yeah. And like, this is an interesting thing with her. She makes these decisions and she has stopped herself many, many times right before she was going to succeed at something. Like she had, she was about to succeed at nursing school and she left. She was about to succeed at her officer training and she uh, she stopped it. She had this really good marriage with John and she took off. Like she didn't stop herself on this one right before she got to do probably the biggest thing of her life. And failure literally meant death and success probably also meant death. And she was, she didn't stop herself. Um, so she gets there and things were running late. An aide comes out the door at 328. She hasn't pulled the gun because it's not him. A guy who looks like him comes out. She starts to pull the gun and then realizes it's not him, puts it away. Because she really, she wasn't there to cause carnage. She was just there to kill Gerald Ford. Now, why specifically Gerald Ford? Not entirely right. sure. He's a representative of the, of the regime. And then she saw him 10 minutes later. She had gotten pushed to the front of the crowd. She had planned to put, do this from the middle of the crowd for some reason. She got pushed to the front. She is 40 feet away. Now, Austin, you have gone hunting. How far away is 40 feet in terms it's of this? That's you can't you can't miss. You can't miss. And she is military trained with guns. 
she should not have missed. She pulls out her gun. She lines it up with his forehead. She shoots. The bullet hits the wall behind him because it was a gun she had never shot before and it didn't shoot straight. That is the only reason Gerald Ford survived that day is that they had, that she had bought a faulty gun. She raised the gun again and Oliver Sipple, an ex-Marine, grabbed her arm. There are conflicting reports about whether or not a second shot happened. If it did, it didn't hit anybody exactly, although there was a bystander named... John Ludwig, who was hit. Now, again, conflicting reports about whether he was hit by a bullet or by shrapnel from the wall. Either way, there was no bullet inside of him at any point, but he did get hit by in the groin by whatever happened. Uh, it got bruised up real bad. He went to the oh. hospital. They checked him out. They released him. He wasn't even supposed to be there. He was a cab driver who got stuck and decided to go watch. So John Ludwig wasn't supposed to be there. Oliver Sippel was just a dude in the crowd. And... Both of their lives were ruined significantly more than Gerald Ford's that day. Because Oliver Sipple, fucking hero, right? This guy, yeah. like, tackles him. Not tackle, but he grabs her and takes her down until the police can get there. So all these news stories are getting out, and somehow, somehow it, gets, it comes out that he's gay. Oh. And this is the 1970s. So his family gets harassed. He gets harassed. They must be lying about his military experience. It must not have even been him who did that this day. We can't have somebody like him on the national on the national picture. He can't possibly be a hero. He can't possibly have done this. And on top of that, all Gerald Ford ever did was send him a letter, um, <clears throat> which led to him ultimately um, becoming, you know, falling into alcohol and all that. And he died relatively young. And then Ludwig, just a fucking bystander. So he ends up in the hospital. He's fine, though. And Secret Service calls him. They're like, hey, um, you all right? And he's like, yeah, I guess. And they're like, what can we do for you? We, 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 you got shot, you know, while the president was trying to be shot at. What do you want? He goes, I want to meet Gerald Ford. And they said, no, he's too busy. He don't want to talk to little people like you. Are you a fucking cab driver? So John Ludwig, in a statement to a newspaper, said, to hell with Ford. This resulted in the FBI coming, holding him and interrogating him for threatening the president. Oh, my God. Now, that alone doesn't sound like a life ruiner. It just sounds like really obnoxious and horrible. Except this guy had already survived Nazi Germany. Oh. And the Japanese occupation in Shanghai. Oh. And so now he finally gets to this fucking land of the free, and he gets interrogated for saying something that is protected by free speech. That was in no way a threat. And all he got was that fucking form letter that was like, thank you for be for not being dead. And he's like, yeah, I fucking destroyed that because to hell with Ford. To hell with Ford. Oh, my God, this asshole. It's like they're not really pertinent to the overall story. I just didn't want them left out because they matter as people. And what we did to them was shit. And by way, by we, I mean, like us as a society, we fucked them. Um, interestingly, the book Taking Aim at the President doesn't mention Ludwig at all, but he definitely exists. Um, so she was ultimately wrestled down by some police officers and taken to the Borgia room of St. Francis. She refused to talk until she was sure her son was safe. I don't know what she fucking planned to do if she had succeeded. Oh my God. If she had been killed. She had made no plans for someone else to pick up Frederick that day. She just was like, I won't talk to you until I know my son is safe. So finally they're like, yes, we sent a car. He is fine. He is at Child Protective Services right now. He's fine. And so she agreed to talk and she told them everything except in no sensible order, just rambling all over the goddamn place. But there were two things that stuck out. In another minute, if the president had not come, I would have had to leave to pick up my boy. <laughs> what was your plan, ma'am? Like, Did you oh. really think you were going to go shoot him and then just be allowed to leave? I've got a very busy schedule. Pilates at eight. I'm dropping off Frederick at nine. I'm killing the president at 10. More Pilates at 11. And then I got to pick up Frederick from school. 
And then she said, if I had had my 44 with me, I would have caught him. Yeah. Basically saying, I'm a really good shot. It wasn't my fault I missed. And I wasn't going to miss that second time. She also did insist that no one had been working with her and that she'd acted entirely alone, that the, I assume the tribal thumb girl was just a coincidence. Now, I'm not implicating tribal thumb because A, I'm still scared of people. And B, <laughs> there actually is no evidence that they were involved. She was given... He was like, so uh, what's your name? Mm-mm. <laughs> I mean, she told him his name was Sarah, her name was Sarah Jane Moore, but that's not true. Yeah. Uh, he refi- she refused to tell him about her background, the group she was involved with, nothing. Refused to tell him anything. And he's like, I can't fucking defend you if you don't tell me stuff. Too bad. Okay, can we plead insanity? Now, insanity is a legal term, not a medical term. It literally means diminished capacity. You were not able to understand that what you were doing was right, was wrong. And she's like, I don't want everybody thinking I'm crazy. No. He's like, but I can't defend you. And you're planning on pleading not guilty. She's like, yeah, I'm planning on, I'm not guilty. And he goes, but you are, unless you give me a reason to plead it otherwise. (laughs) And she's like, no, poor John Hewitt. Meanwhile, Frederick is in the custody of the San Francisco Juvenile Authority. Poor Frederick had no idea he had family. No, he didn't know he had grandparents, aunts, uncles, siblings, nothing. Don't know if he knew his dad was still alive. He knew he had a dad, but he didn't remember him. And Sarah Jane's not telling anybody anything. So luckily for them, she had met a couple named Gail and Charles Roberts in 1966, and they agreed to take Frederick. They kept him until he graduated from high school in 1984, which was the same year his dad died. The author of this book called them and was like, can I get a statement? And they said, no. Like, we have spent his whole life trying to protect him. We are not letting him be involved. And the author, who's a journalist, said, okay, didn't bother Frederick, didn't bother them again. Because this poor kid, this poor fucking kid, because I do believe his mom loved him in her own way. So she didn't want to plead insanity, obviously, and a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists came to meet with her. They got her records. They tried to figure out what they could do. I consider they all diagnosed her with different things or with nothing at all. I thought about listing all those things out. I decided not to because too often mental illness gets brought up in these stories and mental illness does not mean you're going to try to assassinate anybody. So I was like, no, I'm not going to further that. And also, if you have a mental illness that can cause anything that's dangerous, you are typically a danger to yourself and no one else. They did agree, though, that she had a lack of empathy, which none of the diagnoses they gave have a lack of empathy involved. Well, they do, but it's a challenge with not a lack of. Now, also, I mentioned that the trauma thing was going to come back. She refused to tell them anything about her childhood, anything about her background. They were not able to diagnose her with anything trauma related because she refused to give them any information. (laughs) So they actually couldn't figure out if there was actually something wrong with her because she wouldn't tell them anything. But they all did agree that she uh, was competent to stand trial. So Dr. Gustav Weiland, who argued for the prosecution, said she was, quote, a blank slate. She that he. Uh, so Dr. Gustav Weiland was the one who actually came up with the idea that she was playing all these different characters. He was like, every time she puts on a new character, she tries it out for a while. She sheds it. She starts a new life. And after a while, after you've played all these characters, you're eventually going to play a bad guy. And that's what he th- said happened here, basically. She had gone through all the good guys. Now she had to be a bad guy. Now, there are literally dozens of witnesses, and she is still refusing to plead diminished capacity. She is still insisting on pleading not guilty. Hewitt was like, no. And she was like, yes. And he was like, no, seriously. She's like, yeah, no, this is what we're doing. And so they went to issue her plea. And Hewitt was like, I tried because he actually put in a plea of diminished capacity and she got pissed. Um, so they went to issue the plea and she told the judge that she knew what she was doing was illegal and that she had chosen to do it and that she didn't fucking feel bad about it. And not only that, she said, quote, to those of you who share my dream of a new revolution in this land of ours, I say fight on to those dedicated to keeping from the people that 
what is rightly theirs, I warn you to never turn your backs on those, on us. For these and for other reasons, I am disinclined to participate in what promises to be a circus, though called a trial, nor do I want to put on some ob- someone else's shoulders the responsibility for deciding what is already obvious and to the government a necessary verdict. And the judge told her no. <laughs> he didn't want her to change her plea. He said that, yeah, I think you're at diminished capacity. I know you weren't cooperating with psychiatrists. He explained to her multiple times, if you don't plead diminished capacity, I probably have to give you life in prison. I can't not do that. But if you plead diminished capacity, you will get far less time. She's like, but I'm not crazy. And he goes, okay, fine. If you plead guilty to assault and not this because of diminished capacity, I can probably get you lesser time. No. So what's the plan here? So she ultimately decided to plead guilty. Uh, She had a pretrial hearing and uh, she did this really amazing thing during it because she knew what perjury was. This woman is very smart. She did not want to commit perjury. So they asked her things like, were you acting alone? And she would say, for this incident, yes. Wait, are you saying there was another incident? Am I on trial for another incident? So wait, wait, wait. And he actually said, oh my, I'm really confused about what you're saying right now. And she goes, I'm saying that for this incident, on this date, I acted alone. So you didn't act alone on another date. Am I on trial for another date? <laughs> so she at no point committed perjury and she at no point technically implicated anybody else. But she, so she was able to not lie while also not telling the truth. <laughs> I'm not saying I respect it. I'm saying that it's kind of impressive. So she went to prison. <laughs> uh, the judge was pissed. He put, he gave her life in prison and she got to prison and immediately started staging protests yep. because obviously she did that. She spent a lot of time in solitary for the first year, but when she was out, she did manage to make some positive changes. Like she started a women's meeting group where it would help people like transition to life on the outside and handle things. And she also delivered a baby. And so all kinds of stuff was going down and delivering the baby. But she also got some changes made because nobody came to help. So after a year, though, mostly in solitary, she's like, oh, wait, I don't like it here. And the judge Conti was like, yeah, that's why I tried to tell you to do it. And I knew you were going to not like it there. So that's why I took care of all the paperwork because, bitch, you are not getting out. And so she didn't get out. And then they appealed that again. They were told down. She ended up being moved to a prison in West Virginia where she lived. She complained to people she corresponded with that she had no one there to come visit her. <laughs> her family is all less than four hours away. And before she was able to write these letters, her daughter, Janet, tried to visit. This girl she had not seen since she was three years old showed up at the prison and was turned away because Sarah Jane Moore said she didn't have a daughter. I'm so lonely here. No one visits me. Hi, mom. Go away. No one loves me. Yeah. She told prison staff this girl who she had not seen since she was three years old was not her daughter. She had no daughter. And her brother also came and she was like, I don't know who that guy is. So they're like, you know what? Fuck you, Sarah. And left. She spent a lot of time in all of her prisons in various solitary confinements. In 1979, she was fucking done. So she and another prisoner named Marlene Martino uh, climbed a 12-foot barbed wire fence, fled into the woods, got into someone's car, was taken far away, got into a cab, took went somewhere else. She said in an interview that it was my intent that when I had used the knowledge that she, meaning Marlene, had to abandon her if that were feasible and then kill her if it was not. Oh, damn. And yet, after that, Sarah Jane got less of a fine and additional sentence than Marlene did. Ugh. And Marlene Marlene was like, no, she was threatening me. Like, I had to do that. Now, Marlene, I also don't believe her because she was dressed for this trip and Sarah Jane was not. But, yeah, I was not able to find out information about Marlene Martino, but I am thinking Marlene Martino was not white. Yeah. And then she ended up in the same prison as Squeaky from. What? 
Did they start a book club? They started protesting together and going on hunger strikes. Okay, because if they had started a book club, Oprah would have written a book about this by now. Oprah doesn't write books, she just recommends them. Okay, well, Oprah would have recommended this book. The the President's Assassin's Ladies Books Club. They went on hunger strikes. Sarah Jane was, for some reason during all of this, allowed to write press releases. <laughs> and she was like, I'm doing okay on my hunger strike. They definitely didn't find a whole bunch of dried food in my in my dorm. <laughs> Um, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence that she ever really knew, um, ever really knew Squeaky that well. And I also read an unconfirmed thing that she lived in the same basic area as Charles Manson at one point, but I can't remember if he ever lived in West Virginia. No, so. I think, I don't know. I, I haven't studied Charles Manson no. that much. She also got a letter during this time from her former neighbor, Greg Dunning, who had agreed to store her art for her because she was an art collector. And this of is- Of course she was. This is nice art that he had to like keep up with. He had to like take care of it, not just like put it in a box. It actually put him in debt, having to care for this art. And so he wrote it and he's like, hey, I can't afford to take care of your art anymore. Can I sell it and give all the money to Frederick? He did not ask to be repaid. He asked to give the money to Frederick. She um, tried to take him to court for grand theft of the stuff that she wanted back that he couldn't return to her. Of course. And this wasn't really elaborated on the book, but she ended up calling Jerry Spiler, who wrote the book, and said, um, hey, can you take some art for me? <laughs> and Jerry's like, okay, cool. And she's a young journalist at the time. She's like, I'm going to get this in. I'm guessing is what her thought was. And so she ended up taking the art in 1982. And Frederick graduated from high school in 1984. She was told that she could give the art to Frederick when he graduated. So she's like, hey, um, Frederick going to get it. Oh, he's too busy. Frederick going to get it. No, he's too busy. It's, it's costing her 50 bucks a month in the 80s for a budding journalist. That's a lot of money. And in 1991, she just gave up asking if she could get rid of the art. And it was just sitting in a storage unit. And then in 1983, suddenly Sarah Jane was Jewish and had always been Jewish. What are you talking about? Well, obviously, it's because the Episcopalians never did anything for yeah, her. Yeah, seriously. Like, oh, well, my father was an Orthodox Jew. His family came over in the 1800s from yeah. Orthodox Judea, I yeah, assume. Yeah, uh, Olaf, you know, a very common and Jewish name. And her mother was a Moroccan Jew. And you guys have always known this. Like, this is her phrasing of things, more or less. And I'm like, yeah, you're not Jewish. But uh, see, the prison, the Jewish inmates wanted a kosher kitchen. And this was a fight. She was like, oh, I haven't gotten in a good protest in a while. So I've got to be Jewish for this. I'm going to say I was always Jewish and I'm going to use some language that is not appropriate. Like I just like paraphrased her with. And so she gets in there and the other ones are like, I'm out. So Sarah Jane is in there fighting this alone, claiming to be Jewish to get a kosher kitchen so that her religious beliefs can be respected. <laughs> That she has never had before. While the other people on this committee are like, um, she yells too much and this is not worth it. So they left. The thing is, Sarah Jane won. Sarah Jane just wore down that manager, I assume. The thing was, in exchange, she had to run the kosher kitchen. This woman had never cooked kosher in her life. She had to be the cook in this kosher kitchen. And she's like, well, okay. And she went to the regular kitchen, got pots and pans. It is not kosher if you are using pots, pans, silverware that has had non-kosher food in it touching it anything so it certainly wasn't a kosher kitchen oh, but it sounds like she basically ran it until until she was released and years went by and sarah chilled out as they usually do she still ended up in solitary usually because of the injustices but less and less often she actually took computer classes which is why i'm a little afraid of her because i bet she's on facebook and um oh god she's gonna have a google <clears throat> alert set up and we'll be the first hit in a decade and she'll be all over us well no she's had some hits in the last couple of years okay and she actually ended up working in the prison financial department because, you know, there had never been any sketchy things happening there. Oh, God, is this becoming the Shawshank Redemption? A little bit. A little bit. As far as I can tell, nothing weird ever happened with the finances, but 
Uh, Gerald Ford died in 2006 at the age of 93, and Sarah Jane actually said that she felt bad by then. A year later, on December 31st, 2007, Sarah Jane Moore was released for five years of supervised parole and then a lifelong a lifelong regular parole. She was 79, and she became the first person ever released after attempting to assassinate a president. Squeaky Frome was the second one two years later. Squeaky Frome is currently living, I believe, in upstate New York with a boyfriend, and I heard that their house is decorated with skulls. Awesome. So what happened to the art collection? I'm guessing Storage Wars? When the book was published, Sarah Jane was like, oh shit, my art. Yeah, I forgot about that, is what I assume went through her head. So she uh, called the publisher and was like, hey, tell Jerry I want my art. And Jerry's like, yes, please. Oh, she didn't leave any contact information. Okay, uh, can you find it? Nope. Nobody has her contact information. I can't. Her lawyer, no. She's nobody, on parole. You should be able to me. get a hold of her. Finally, in 2009, after Jerry went to her own lawyer and was like, what do I do? Because I'm tired of storing this. Like, yeah, you need to give her reasonable notice that you plan to get rid of the art. And she's like, I can't find her. And this is long after the days where you can just put an adoption notice in the in the newspaper and have <laughs> yeah. it be, be considered a notice. But finally, in 2009, Sarah Jane's lawyer said he was going to sue Jerry for not returning the art promptly. So it sounds like hopefully she got to return the art then. No idea where it is now. No idea if Frederick ever got any money. No idea if Frederick has seen his mom. Leave Frederick alone. He didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, Frederick is the Britney in this story. Mm -hmm. And then I thought that's going to be the end of the story. And then in 2019, Sarah Jane Moore decided to go to Israel without telling her parole officer. Oh, no. Sarah Jane Moore does have a legal passport. She is probably allowed to travel internationally with the proper permissions. She did not get that legal passport. And apparently she got sick in Israel and was there for a long time, so they noticed that she was gone. She was arrested when she got back to JFK Airport. And um, the last thing I was able to f read back in early 2019 was she has a hearing next week. Nothing since then. <laughs> the end. What? Even... I just, what? Yes, we have the double agent many times over. She was doing this for the FBI, the ATF, the police department, Randolph Hearst, every single radical leftist group, and nobody fucking figured her out. She would have gotten away with all of this if she had never tried to shoot the president. <laughs> That's where she went wrong, is you never try to assassinate the president. No, as we're seeing with all those capital rioters right now, you'll get find out and you will lose your job. Yes. Oh my god. And you will not get to eat your all organic food. Oh no, they they caved in. They sent him to a different prison so he can eat his all organic food. Oh my god. Yeah. So I did not write any questions because that was super fucking long and it was about 20 minutes longer this time. I feel time. like I have many questions. I might be able to answer them. Yeah. Well, no, these these aren't questions that can be answered. Yeah, so that's the thing is Sarah Jane Moore we don't really know how much of the story is true. That's kind of a Rebecca Harkness thing all over, yeah. too. We don't know how much is true and how much is fan is made up and who made it up and what's going on. Um, we do know that Sarah Jane Moore is still alive. We do know that her son is probably still alive, um, which in which, again, be cool. He didn't yeah. do anything with this. I assume I, I would assume some of her siblings and her other kids are still alive. They didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people just come out not right. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes you just try and assassinate a president and your kids are not a part of that. Now, here's the thing that stuck out to me the whole time is that people from the time she was young noticed she was different. Now, I'm not saying different is bad because different is not bad. But when you have these red flags flying up all over the place, we need to give people a little bit more leash to uh, do something. Yeah. Um, like I said, in Mindhunter, if you have not read Mindhunter by John Douglas, they talk about, you know, they will know. Elementary teachers know and we need to listen to them. That's how we stop this. So, yeah, 
If you've got a kid in your elementary class or one of your kids' classmates, you're going, huh, that kid seems like they're going to assassinate the president someday. Try to do something. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. That's a bonkers story, though, isn't that was, it? That was bonkers. That's the nuttiest story I've heard in a long time. And why don't people... It's like, I understand why we don't hear about this because no one does anything about it. But oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we never even learned about his assassination attempts in school. We yeah. did all this time on Lincoln and a little bit of time on Kennedy. Mm-hmm. A lot of time on Lincoln. And... We didn't even learn that Garfield and McKinley were assassinated. We didn't learn about the 17 attempts. And honestly, this kind of story is what would really draw someone in. But it also doesn't make authorities look very good. No, it makes... All of this, 100% of this was stoppable. Yeah. Everyone bungled everything for like years on this one. Oh, so so I know I'm getting tired. So where can people find us? The closet that is making me cough. Also on onthetestpod.com on facebook.com slash on the test pod twitter.com or twitter handle is on the test pod that is the easiest way to reach us and instagram at on the test pod we are also on every podcast platform as far as we know including the one you're listening on right now but if that does not happen to be apple or even if it is and you have not yet yet left us a five-star review because anything lower would just be really mean especially after me having to record this twice today really i think we deserve a sixth star petition for a sixth star specifically for us yeah so please go leave us a rating Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell anybody who doesn't know the story of Sarah Jane Moore, because this is probably the most comprehensive single thing on the internet. And I'm sure someone's going to tweet at me and be like, no, this entire, there's a serial audit. But you know what? I didn't find them. Yeah. So... <laughs> oh, and we also, uh, we got, we did get a very nice email thanking us for our Re- Rebecca Harkness episode. So thank you very much for sending us. That was very nice of you. Yes, that was really exciting. And we are... You know, we're still here. Hopefully this will record this records this time. Because... If it doesn't, we're cursed. And I don't know why I'm saying it now, because you won't hear it. Yeah, if this doesn't work, I, I'm going to make Austin retell the story back to me next time. See how much he remembers. <laughs> I think I might. I might remember a lot. So we hope you enjoyed. We were here every Tuesday in our closet telling you stories from history, that things you should have learned in school. And anything else? I think that covers it. Right. I am really hungry and I'm on, tired. So on, on that, that note, note, class dismissed. dismissed.